0: Marriage that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. That's no problem, man. That's no love, that true love. True love, or as St. Paul calls it, the most excellent way. Here's the thing. I showed that video clip because I think it's a classic scene from a wonderful film. And if you've never seen The Princess Bride, you absolutely should. But also I showed it because we've all, we've all heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at weddings. And I'm actually fine with this being a wedding reading. Wow. <laughs> Sounded just like it. <laughs> Marriage. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. huh? <laughs> you failure. I'm actually fine with this being a wedding reading. For in the final analysis, only true love as defined by God could ever, ever possibly make a marriage work. However, here's the problem. The final analysis of this passage, that true love is divinely self-sacrificial and has nothing to do with gushy sentiment, is often not why the passage is read at weddings. It is mostly read at weddings because it sounds so beautiful, and on the surface seems quite romantic. But when read that way, out of context, and simply for its ascetic beauty and gushy sentiment, we can be led to think that Paul's intentions were to write a lyrical ode to the wonder of an abstract idea called love. But for Paul, there is nothing abstract about love. He writes... Love is not an idea for Paul, not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. Love is primary for Paul because it has already been given concrete expression in the coming of Jesus Christ to die for the sins of the world. And Witherington adds, Though it is a brilliant piece of writing that exalts love, it is used in a deliberative argument to exhort the Corinthians to let love be their guiding principle in all that they say and do. We are finally here. After 44 weeks of exploring this exceptional letter of St. Paul's, we've arrived at this masterpiece that I've been so anxious and excited to get to. I believe this is not only the center of this letter, I believe it's the center of Paul's entire library, and at some level, this is the center of our entire scripture that we have. Since we began this series in Corinthians, we have encountered through the book, directly and indirectly, stated in the positive and in the negative, over and over again, this theme of love as defined by Jesus Christ, and Paul's insistence that to be a Christian is to love. Alright, here's some of the references that we've looked at so far. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought, we preach Christ crucified. Paul said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have the mind of Christ. This is stated in the negative. There is jealousy and quarreling among you. That's the Corinthian way. We are fools for Christ. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. That's the most excellent way. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. No one should seek their own good, but the good of God. <coughs> follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each Paul has been dealing with problem after problem in Corinth that we've seen. And we have learned that despite the different details of those problems, and there are many problems and they all have their own details, the consistent underlying issue in Corinth was this lack of true love that they had for each other. And what has been really interesting to discover, and what Paul is most aggressively fighting And I might add, what makes this letter of such vital importance to Christians today is that this loveless behavior within the Corinthian community is all happening under the pretense of Christianity. Many of these folks acting in this way are not doing so because they are not Christians, but because their understanding of Christianity does not include this foundational truth. Love God, love others. Fee writes, they have a spirituality that has religious trappings, asceticism, knowledge, tongues, but has abandoned rather totally, genuinely Christian ethics with its supremacy of love. And one of the most challenging things as we go through this passage over the next few weeks that we're all going to deal with, if we're being honest with ourselves and we're approaching it authentically, is that we all hold to a Christianity that at times has abandoned the supremacy of love. We all have that. Parts of our faith, and when we're really honest, have all abandoned the supremacy of love, just as the Corinthians did. Paul has slowly and methodically and purposefully built up his arguments against the Corinthians, until he delivers this epic summary of his indictment of their understanding of Christianity in a most beautiful defense of his understanding of Christianity. The Corinthians' way is not working. And we've seen that. You read Corinth, you know the Corinthian way isn't working. And so Paul says, well, let's, here is the most excellent way, the way of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage all of us As we go through this passage that we have been building up to and building up to over the last 40, well not the last 44 weeks, but over 44 weeks. Let's try to remove our masks. Let's try to take down those walls and let's try to be as honest as we possibly can with ourselves. Because an authentic approach to this passage cannot help but change our lives. At minimum, at minimum, if we're honest, this will expose in all of us ways in which we do not truly love others. Often, right in our own families. And at best, this will drive us to our knees. So as maybe, finally, to surrender to the transformation God offers when we sincerely want to be like Jesus Christ. It's not easy to hear what Paul says here. But if this is the heart of Christianity, and I think it is, can we really risk not trying to hear it? Can we really continue to approach Scripture without authenticity and with our own agendas and continue to call ourselves Christians? I don't know. But to start with, we should probably ask ourselves a question. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. JJ, I need him to sing for us. All. all right, no that's enough of that. No well, I'm already no stopped. <laughs> what? It's supposed to work better. Than that. The word Paul uses here is rather unique: agape. Now, many of us brought up in the church have heard the traditional breakdown of love in the ancient Greek, right? Eros, a passionate, desiring, sexual love. Philia, friendship, family, community love, and agape, sacrificial, unconditional, God's love. Here's the thing. While in the end, this breakdown can work, it can work in the end, the way it can be presented to us is sometimes not exactly consistent with good scholarship. It's a bit more complicated than this breakdown, which is often presented as just a word study in the Greek, okay? It, it, it's more complicated for a couple of reasons. Number one, in classical Greek, the first two words are really the primary words used for love. Agape is was one of a number of much lesser used words with very ambiguous meanings. In all of those words, so this really isn't this isn't an accurate study Greek word study. Okay. Number two, the black and white distinction that we tend to give the first two, the the primary ones, eros and They're not so black and white in classical Greek as we want to be led to believe. And the perfect example of that is Plato. Plato often used er eros uh, in a decidedly non-sexual way for attraction to beauty that had nothing to do with sexuality, etc. Which is why in modern times we have that term platonic relationship, right? That's the describe a relationship that's non-sexual. So, it, it's it's much more ambiguous. And I point this out, not because of our understanding of agape as sacrificial, unconditional, god-love is wrong, but to acknowledge that this understanding of it comes from Scripture itself. And that's, that's important. It's not from some simple exploration of the ancient Greek language. And that's important for two reasons, I think. Number one, it can help us better understand Why does you sometimes in a different way? And and the biggest example of that happens in John 3. So, for God so loved the world. Now this is where we begin, this is the foundational statement for why we have said agape means sacrificial, unconditional, God's love. But just a couple sentences later, St. John writes, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Obviously those are two very different words, right? Obviously. So this is not, you know, God, sacrificial, unconditional love, this this loving darkness instead of light, where that one is. Maybe for some of us it's not important, but there's always people that really struggle and stumble and have obstacles through things like this. And, and people that are, you know, sometimes what happens is, you know, we... we, we brought up or were presented these very simple black and white ideas and then all of a sudden we learn things and we're like, oh well, and then people end up abandoning everything just because of these simple things that we could approach honestly and openly with each other. Obviously, this one here, this agape, was more in keeping with the Greek word back then, which was hardly ever used in in classical literature, where this is the scriptural understanding of it that we have developed. Bailey is awesome here, so let me let him talk, because I'm sort of rambling. He first talks about Eros and Philea, and then says, but neither of these words was adequate for what Paul and the other writers of the New Testament wanted to describe. Moving to a higher level of love, they wanted and selected a new word, the term agape. In the Greek Old Testament, the word appears only in the Song of Songs. It is rare in classical Greek. And when used, it has to do with inclining towards something. Paul and his friends selected this word that had no clear footprint in the Greek language and filled it with new meaning. Okay? So that's important. And that's where we get this meaning. And now let's explore that. I want to explore this new meaning today to be better prepared, to be better prepared for exploring more deeply this homily of Paul's in the future. First and foremost, love according to Scripture Jesus Christ alone is the definitive model of love. Jesus Christ is the definitive model of love. He himself says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He's the model of love. As I have loved you. Alright? Now, I'm aware that leaves a lot up to our own interpretations of Christ and his actions as recorded in the Gospel accounts. I get that. And there is often some pretty significant variation in those interpretations. However, I think there are a few certainties. There are a few certainties. Number one, love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. Going back to the foundational statement, which gives this word its fuller meaning, for God so loved the world that He gave His own one and only Son, that is sacrifice. That's sacrificial. Love to be true, then, is sacrificial. Furthermore, even after a casual reading of the Gospel accounts, one is left with the clear impression Christ was always putting others' needs and desires ahead of his own. Okay? That's what sacrifice is. And Paul certainly understood sacrifice as the way of Christ, as the most excellent way. Follow God's example, again, that's the example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He wrote to the Philippians, this the classic hymn to humility, have this mind, same mindset as Jesus Christ, There's he's the model, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Sacrifice. And the verse that we have continually returned to through our study here in 1 Corinthians, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. That's sacrifice. When you sacrifice your own good for the good of others, right? Okay, so true love is sacrificial. Number two, love, according to Scripture, is unconditional. Unconditional. Again, let's start with the foundational statement where we come to understand love, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, okay? And Paul helps us understand what was going on here when he writes, God demonstrates His own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. God's love, unconditional. Okay? And further, Paul develops it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Nothing can separate us. There's no conditions on God's love for us. Now, here's the thing. I am very aware that within Christianity today, there is a massive, massive debate on whether or not God's love is unconditional. But the more I have studied that debate and read both sides of it, the more I'm coming to understand they're not debating God's love at all. This is an age-old debate in which two massive sides of Christianity are debating the character of God. It's been going on for about 500 years. That's what they're debating. They're not debating God's love at all. What's happening is they're using semantics. So, those on the side that God's love is not unconditional, here's how the argument goes. Number one, they'll point to... The fact that you don 't find the term "unconditional love" in the Bible, which okay, but there's a lot of things we apply to God that aren 't exactly right there in Scripture that way, and second, they 're playing semantics, and this is the semantic that they 're playing. what they 're playing is is we have a freedom and a responsibility to respond to god 's love for us, but that 's not a condition that 's not a condition at all. God gave us His love. While we didn't do anything, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. Whether or not we ever receive that, respond to it, that's our doing. But that's not a condition. Does that make sense? Okay? So the best example I've used here, I've used often, and I like this example. I haven't found really a better one. If I have a million dollars, and I want to give it to you, and I bury it in your backyard, AJ, I've given you a million bucks. If you never dig it up and use it, that's not my problem. There was no conditions on me giving it to you. I've given it to you. God has loves everybody. There is no condition on God's love for us. Our response to it, well, that's a different thing. And then third, so love is sacrificial, true love is sacrificial, true love is unconditional, and true love is without prejudice. This is slightly different than unconditional. It just it even makes it broader. It is for everyone. Okay. True love is without prejudice. It is for everyone. Everyone. So let's go back again and start with our foundational statement on where we understand true love according to Scripture. For God so loved the world. Now I, I, I've, I've read through so many different word studies here. You can't define world as excluding anyone. Though it's done. Though it's done. I've read books on this one word not meaning everyone. You, you can't. For God so loved everyone, is what this statement means. Alright? But, Christ was even clearer on his complete lack of prejudice to love, when he said this. I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And this is where it gets tough. Tito's starting to squirm. And he's thinking, not again. Why does it keep going back to love your enemies? But I didn't write it, Tito. Okay? And here we go. It's a long one, but this is Jesus talking. I think we should spend some time reading it together. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone steals from you, takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I am convinced of one thing. All of the major theologies in Christianity in which we argue and debate back and forth, I believe we're birthed because of this statement. Because we, as human beings, completely and utterly reject this. And so we needed a loophole. And I'm not saying this was something that consciously happened, but the unconscious is very powerful. We needed a loophole around this. And what's the best loophole around this? Creating a God who hates his enemy. And once you have a God who hates enemies, you now have the biggest loophole in the world that you can drive through to hate yours. So, I want to say this again, and I'm talking mostly to myself, because even as I was sitting here, you know, I've been studying this all week, and even again, reading it, every single first, as I'm going through it, every single statement, I'm like, oh yeah, I have a, I have a way out of that, I have a way out of that, I talk myself out of that, you know, i, I got a way out of all of this. And it's good theology. So I just want to say this clearly to myself and to everyone else. When you stand opposed to loving your enemy, no matter how horrific he is, you stand opposed to God. And no matter what Christian theologian wrote it, no matter what Christian celebrated author said it, No matter what pastor stands in the pulpit and says you can hate your enemies, all I'm telling you is this. It's not Christian. And I'm not mad at you guys. I am talking to myself. It is a loophole that we have inserted into Scripture because we have created a God who hates His enemies. He doesn't. Scripture's clear. And the next time you want to walk through that loophole... Remind yourself of Paul's words. He died for you and me while we were his enemies. If he hates his enemies, then he hates us. It's not Christian. Do it. I do it. There's good reasons to do it. I'm just saying, let's not not call ourselves Christians as long as we defend hating our enemies. And Bonhoeffer, who had every reason to hate an enemy... He goes even further. Tito, this one's really going to (laughs) hurt. By our enemies, Jesus means those who are quite intractable and utterly unresponsive to our love, who forgive us nothing when we forgive them all, who requite our love with hatred and our service with derision. And Bailey opens that quote up a little bit for us. Bonhoeffer's point is that the enemy is not the person who is softened by love and becomes a friend. Instead, he or she is the person who refuses the offered love and remains stubbornly opposed to the one extending the love. And there's the rub. Right there. Oh, we will love our enemies as long as it changes them. We're good at that. You stop hurting us, and I'll give you all the love in the world. You become my friend, I'll love you. That's not what Jesus is saying. is saying, love our enemies and forgive those who hurt us even when they remain enemies and continue to hurt us. That is true love as scripture defines it anyway. Secondly, love according. what is love according to scripture? Love is what we were made for. So Jesus Christ is the definitive model of love. We've just looked at that. Secondly, love according to scripture is ultimately what we were made for. The commandments of God define the way of human life, and Jesus said very clearly, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Paul almost repeated this word for word when he wrote to the Romans, Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever, whatever (coughs) other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, this is where the Cana vision statement comes from. Love God, love others, everything else is just a footnote. It's just a rephrasing of St. Paul. It's not something I made up. Right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Summed up. The whole thing is summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the entire law. And here in our letter, 1 Corinthians, Paul is always pointing this out. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision. Keeping God's commands is what counts. What's God's commands? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, the most excellent way, Christ's way. And if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Lord's command. So, we are made for love. Jesus Christ is the definitive model of love. Love is what we are made for. And and finally, love requires God in us. True love, as defined by Scripture, is not something we can do by ourselves. We can't. You can't just pick up your bootstraps and find this way to love others. And anyone who's ever tried it eventually gets exhausted. And things break down and relationships break down and life breaks down and we can't do it ourselves. It's only because of God's love for us and in us that we can be transformed to love as he loves. He says we (laughs) love because he first loved us. On the practical side of this, this simply means recognizing how much God loves us. Half the time that we we are so judgmental and we don't love our enemies is because we don't realize how much God loves us. We've just bought into this idea that He loves us because we're special. No. He loves us because He is love. And if we could live in that understanding, then it's easier to love others Mm -hmm. who don't love us. I heard someone define relationship or or healthy relationship as an attitude of gratitude. Thankful. We're thankful because we know how much God has loved us and how blessed we've been by Him. We don't attribute it to our specialness. We attribute it to God's love for us. And in that, that's how we can look at people that hurt us or look at people that we we don't care about and still find a way to love and forgive but we're grateful that's the practical side we love because he first loved us when we really truly understand we've been forgiven we will forgive when we truly understand we've been loved we will love and the spiritual side of that is God in us and only God in us could ever empower us to truly love to truly love And this is why it's so important to constantly be exploring what this love is. And we're always doing it. For as long as we stand opposed to God's love, as long as we stand opposed to God's love in all its amazing fullness, that it is sacrificial, that it is unconditional, and that it is without prejudice, whenever we stand against that, at any level, for any reason, because I've told you 57 times not to do that, and you're still doing it. That's why I don't love you anymore. Whenever we stand opposed to true love for any reason, we stand fighting against the very thing God is trying to do in us. The very thing. I hear people say all the time, oh, I just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit is trying to fill you up to love your enemies. God in us, the Holy Spirit in us, Jesus Christ in us, whatever you want to call it, if we want to be filled with the power of God, we should probably want to be filled with the power of God. Does that make sense? (coughs) God, fill me with your spirit. But by the way, first I'm going to kill all these people because I hate them. And I'm not going to love my wife anymore because I gave her ten years to smarten up. And I'm kicking my kid out because I gave him 15 years to smarten up. And on and on and on and on our rationale goes. Because God hates his enemies, we have created a God who hates his enemies. So we allow ourselves to hate our enemies. And the whole time God's like, no, I want to fill you up, but that's not what I'm doing. He's got a train going somewhere. And when we get on a train going in the other direction, we're not going where God's going. And I'm not pointing fingers at anyone this morning. I'm horrible at this thing. This is why a few weeks ago I I took some time to apologize for you for having a hypocritical pastor. I am. I will never be hypocritical on, you know, some surface list of morals. And I can say that clearly because I don't preach surface list of morals. So, you're never going to be able to say, you said never to drink, and I saw you drinking. No, I never said not drink. That's why I drink. But, I'm hypocritical when it comes to this. But this is the heart of the gospel. Love, the most excellent way. Are we on it? Are we on it? And if we're not, that's fine. But I think what we should probably do is not call ourselves Christians. That's all I'm saying. If we're not on the way of love, let's just not call ourselves Christians. That was what Paul's point to the Corinthians was. Don't call yourself Christians if you hate people. And certainly don't call yourself Christians if you hate the people you're breaking bread with. How does that work? But here's the beauty of Paul. He still called them Christians. Because he knew God loved them just like he loves us. And even when we blow it, God still loves us. And is just asking us to get on the way of love. Right now, where in our lives are we standing opposed to love? Right now, who, who, in our lives right now, are we withholding true love from? Who? I want you to think about it because I know there's someone. Who is that person? Just think of one that you're holding true love, We are withholding true love from. Might be a sibling. Might be a spouse. Or an ex-po. Might be a mother or a mother-in-law. Might be someone you work with. Who is it? Get him in your mind right now. Here's an exercise I'm going to ask us to do this week and every week that we're on this passage. Let's read verses 4 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 13 every day. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc., etc. But when we read it, I don't want us to read it, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle. I want us to put our name in there. And then when we finish reading it, ask ourselves, why can't we treat that one person that way? is holding us back. Why are we standing opposed to true love with that person? And let's make a covenant together. Let's change our mind about what true love means. And start getting serious about allowing God to truly transform us into people who go His way. Let's just start with that one person. One person. Okay? We can leave the big enemies out of it for a while. I get it. It's really hard to love the big enemies. So let's start with the small ones. The people in our lives that we're withholding true love from. And let's see if it will maybe, when the day comes... My suspicion is America's days of being first world and everything's perfectly comfortable, eh, I might make it through to my grave, but my suspicion is the next couple generations aren't going to be so lucky And real enemy love. Like Bonhoeffer had to go through is going to be part of our reality too. But let's not start there. Let's not try to figure out how we're going to love the next day I feel that comes up. Let's just start with the person in our lives. And let's use Paul's words to do that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. One of the most prolific theologians of modern times who wrote volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes on theology, Karl Barth, he said two things I want to leave you with this morning. The first thing he said, he was asked, What's the most important thing you have learned in your years and years of study and writing and scholarship? With dead seriousness, he looked at the person asked him the question and said, Jesus loves me, this I know. And the second thing, Karl Barth said, it is love alone that counts. It is love alone that triumphs. It is love alone that enjoys. I think he understood the most excellent way. With God's help, might we do <laughs>